Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, here to wish our American listeners a happy Thanksgiving. In fact, this week's offering has something of a Thanksgiving theme in the sense that Thanksgiving weekend traditionally is the time of year when newly indoctrinated first-year American college students come back home to eat turkey with their family and lecture everyone about all the evils inflicted on the planet by Western nations. At least that's the stereotype. I wouldn't actually know because I'm from Canada where everyone's more polite and Thanksgiving takes place in October. But you don't have to be American to wonder how Westerners turned what might be called anti-Westernism into the dominant creed of our educated classes. Whether it's Noam Chomsky writing about American state terrorism, or the academics who made excuses for 9-11, or the modern intersectionalists who cast Western societies as seething hellholes of white supremacist bigotry, hatred of our Western societies has been mainstream on Western campuses since at least the 1960s and social media only seems to have made the problem worse in recent years. My guest this week says this is actually nothing new. In a recent Quillette article titled Our Western Self-Hatred, philosopher Benedict Beckel traces the ideology he calls oikophobia, the hatred or dislike of one's own cultural home, all the way back to ancient Athens. In a forthcoming book, he argues that elites within all successful societies that no longer face existential threats eventually turn on themselves. It happened with the Greeks, it happened with the Romans, it happened to the British when they ruled the world's seas, and now it's happening to the rest of us. This week, I spoke to Benjamin Beckled by phone. Here are excerpts from that interview. Oikophobia, you mentioned that it was originally conceived by a British intellectual, Sir Roger Scruton. Can you explain in what context he wrote about it? Yes, he wrote about it in um, a book called England and the Need for Nuisance, which was published in 2004. He had used the term briefly in a shorter article in the 90s, but didn't give it as full of a treatment then. So uh, in this 2004 book, he used it in the sense of this sort of knee-jerk dislike of one's own culture, which is particularly common among young people and among intellectuals, and which is often coupled with allophilia, the preference for other cultures or love of the other. And that description rang true to me because it was something that I had come across myself in many Western countries and that I think many of us are familiar with. He had used the term mainly in the context of his own country, England and the UK. I became interested in finding out how that might apply to cultures and civilizations at large. And so that's what I set out to study. So you present this as a feature of all highly successful civilizations. Ironically, the more successful the civilization, the more likely it is to fall into self-loathing. Yes. You originally come from Sweden. Is this a feature of intellectual life in Sweden as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, now, admittedly, um, I left Sweden already as a teenager, so I'm not quite as involved nowadays in intellectual life there, but, but it's definitely true of Sweden. Uh, it's true of all Western countries. Now, it becomes less true the less Western the country is, but Sweden obviously being a certainly a Western country, uh, that is a feature there. 
that gives the lie to the notion that this sort of self-loathing, this self-contempt is a result of past crimes that the civilization may have committed because Sweden has been pretty docile. Uh, you know, the last Swedish war was over 200 years ago. It's really something that, that comes about due to other socio-historical circumstances. You talk about oikophobia as this common intellectual reflex that exists in many of these successful societies. But there's another reflex, which is a romantic longing for the past. You see many Americans, maybe not among the intellectual class, but looking back fondly on the 18th century roots of the United States, the past is seen as this ideal. Uh, religious movements have this too. Is there a certain tension between a romantic nostalgia for some foundational early period and the oikophobia you describe? Yes. This nostalgia that you describe is definitely, that's something of the opposite of orcophobia. That's a, a sort of conservatism, which often becomes stronger, actually, the stronger orcophobia becomes, because it's, it's a reaction. And there's a reason why some people on the right are referred to as reactionaries, because they react against, against the excesses of orcophobia. And so they become overly uh, atavistic. They become overly fond of, of a past that never existed, uh, or, or that at least has been idealized. Now, of course, that's, that's true of all civilizations from the beginning. Really, one always idealizes one's own origins. But that tendency is certainly fed by orcophobia as well. The, the stronger orcophobia becomes, the stronger this nostalgia also becomes. And then orcophobia has a counter-reaction to that. And that leads to a, a very sharp fault line, if you will, between those two camps. Both groups are in agreement that the current state of their civilization is in crisis or at a low point. Is it normal that there are relatively few people in a successful civilization who simply have an optimistic or even realistic day-to-day -day appraisal of how good things are? People tend to be more optimistic as the civilization is still rising. One, one sees that. I mean, for the United States, that would be something like late 19th century, early 20th century, certainly uh, up to World War II, a little bit after World War II as well. And then that changes. Once the civilization has achieved its peak, that optimism starts to level off um, because there isn't really any farther one can go, even if people don't um, consciously formulate it that way in their minds. Human beings in general have a need to latch on to something, to something higher, to something ideal. They, uh, the orcophobes and the uh, reactionaries, they might do it in different directions. The reactionaries latch on to an idealized past and the orcophobes latch on to an idealized future with the hope that um, one's own civilization will learn its lessons. And the orcophobia is often combined with a sort of pluralistic, quasi-communist future that is never actually going to exist. But that is also an idealization of certain desires that one has now. And, and in that sense, it's a sort of a mirror reflection of the uh, reactionary nostalgia. I'm wondering how much you intend to put in your forthcoming book on oikophobia about East Asian cultures. I spent some time in Japan, and this was in the 1990s, but I think in Japan the dominant view was that, hey, look, we won the lottery. Our civilization is, uh, is better than those around us. China certainly seems a long way from oikophobia, but maybe that's changing. Have you detected signs of oikophobia in either of those two East Asian nations? It's an interesting question. Uh, in, the, um, in the book, I'm certainly focused on the West, but I do spend a little bit of time discussing non-Western oikophobia. And, and through that discussion, we also see why oikophobia is a mainly Western phenomenon. 
sensorcophobia tends to arise, has a very strong tendency of arising in more egalitarian and democratic cultures, and egalitarianism and democracy being stronger in the West. One can see some traces of it uh, every now and then in the East, but then it's usually because of a confrontation with Western ideas. You mentioned Japan. One could, for example, arguably say that there may have been some traces of orcophobia, for example, in the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, when, when the ruling classes had a sort of condescending attitude toward more traditional Japanese ways, and they had this idea that the West is way ahead of us militarily and in many other ways, and so we have to catch up. However, that was, it wasn't really true orcophobia because that was still with the overall desire of getting ahead of other nations, of growing, of growing more powerful and stronger than the West. The two countries you mentioned, China and Japan, they have been pretty adept at adopting what they feel is good with the West while leaving behind that or not even taking up that which they consider bad with the West. One way Japan has done that is certainly by keeping a, large, a very homogenous population. Orcophobia is stimulated by the introduction of new ideas from abroad, and so that the fact, the fact that the West is ethnically diverse and socially diverse, diverse on many different levels, stimulates orcophobia because we have a much larger melting pot of different ideas, whereas in Japan you have a greater sense of social cohesion because everybody sort of looks the same, and it doesn't mean that everybody thinks the same thing, of course, but that does contribute to social cohesion, and that makes it easier for Japanese society to hold on to their traditional values while at the same time adopting Western technology and, and things about the West that they appreciate. You can find some traces of orcophobia in Eastern societies as well in ancient times. For example, in China, the philosophy of Lao Tzu does seem to have some elements in it that typically have led to orcophobia, sort of a tearing down of social hierarchies and proto-pacifism and things like that. But those are just brief tendencies here and there. The, the overall uh, orcophobic trajectory is, is much stronger in the West, mainly because of our egalitarian and democratic ideals. It strikes me that even in oikophobic societies, there are enforced lapses in oikophobia during wartime. Does the oikophobia go into remission or does it reassert itself right after the war? The main thing is that oikophobia doesn't actually arise until those major wars have already been completed. Usually a civilization will have its large sort of existential wars fairly early on before oikophobia has had a time to develop in the first place. Once a civilization has been very successful, the wars that it has tend to be smaller in scale because uh, no one is able to threaten the civilization in an existential way. And so at that time, because the wars are smaller and not an existential threat, or at least not perceived as an existential threat, orcophobia has much more room for maneuver. And so at that time, war and orcophobia are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And one sees that, of course, in these smaller wars that the United States have had. We're so powerful at this point that the wars we have are fairly, relatively speaking, small. Uh, and so they can coexist with orcophobia. Same thing with Britain, I would say. World War II is the big war during which orcophobia did exist to some extent. Orcophobia had started most strongly in Britain around the turn of the century, around the time of the Boer War. But orcophobia was continuing to grow. It did 
take probably, it is an interesting question. I'm sure acrophobia did, uh, was reduced to some extent during World War II uh, and then came back in force afterwards. There's certainly a sense of existential threat and that we all sort of have to pull together to get through this. And that makes uh, the orcophobes less popular. But nonetheless, as a general rule, I would say that uh, orcophobia occurs in the first place because the big existential wars have already been completed. They already belong to the past. And that's something one sees for, uh, for both modern and ancient civilizations. Could it be said that oikophobia is baked into the very Christian fabric of Western civilization? Uh, in a sense, the rise of Christianity under Constantine was a sort of oikophobia. You had Romans who were tired of their decadent society and for, for generations already had been looking to the East towards spiritual cults. And they saw in Christianity something that could replace, as they saw it, their own tired and decadent and spiritually spent civilization. Uh, was Christianity itself born of a spirit of oikophobia among Romans? Yes, absolutely. Um, that, and that's also something I talk about in the book. Now, in the case of Rome, it's a little more complicated because, of course, since Rome is a sort of multinational empire, it's hard to say to what extent a Jew in Roman Judea who converted to Christianity, to what extent he might have been an oikophobe because the Roman civilization, the Roman culture wasn't really his in the first place. I mean, it's, it depends on an individual basis to what extent he considered the Roman civilization to be his. I meant the Rome of the, of the Constantinian period. Right. The adoption of Christianity by regular everyday Romans uh, is definitely a form of orcophobia. It, and one sees the struggle that the Roman Empire had with religious symbols, which is somewhat akin to the struggle with religious symbols we have today in, in public places, for example, in, in uh, and the competition in a public space between pagan symbols and pagan traditions and Christian symbols and Christian traditions. What's interesting, of course, is also that this Christianity in which orcophobia expressed itself does have certain similarities to the orcophobia of today. And it's uh, that's a bit of a contradiction, one might think, because it's usually the Christians nowadays in modern times who are the traditionalists and who who resist certain waves of the uh, progressive movement. But in fact, there is, of course, and, and as many people have pointed out, there is a sort of latent Christian element in much of the orcophobic movement in that the meek shall inherit the earth, as it were. One's own civilization is too powerful and has victimized others and has abused others. And there should be a greater justice for the weak, for the downtrodden. That is a very orcophobic idea. But I would emphasize that it's not a necessary component of orcophobia because orcophobia arose also in ancient Greece, in Athens, for example, well, well before Christianity came around. And so it is not a necessary component of orcophobia, but it certainly can facilitate it. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we'll resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. 
Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. In your Quillette article, you relate oikophobia to status seeking among the privileged class. Can you describe the interplay between oikophobia and that status-seeking exercise? Oikophobia is essentially an expression of vanity because when one, when one criticizes one's own civilization, one never criticizes one's own personal self. One might go through the movements in a sort of lip service way, but that's not what is actually meant. By pushing down the civilization upon which one stands, one creates a sort of individual island of virtue and enlightenment around one's own personal self. And so one is raised, relatively speaking, as one's own civilization sinks. In that way, orcophobia is certainly an expression of vanity, and it is, an, um, it is a seeking of status. This is something that the ambitious, uh, if you will, tend to uh, engage in more because, well, because they are by nature ambitious and because they seek status in whatever field they are. And that's one of the several reasons why intellectuals tend to be prone to orcophobia. There are several other reasons. Whereas someone who lives in a more, quote unquote, instinctive way, or who is content with his lot and who is not going to uh, try to change the world or anything like that, is less prone to orcophobia. This is a, a, a tendency that runs from antiquity up to today. One always recognizes status seeking and personal glorification in the orcophobe. Is it related to what in the modern parlance we call virtue signaling? Yes, certainly. Has social media tribalized the nostalgics versus the oikophobes? Are we seeing a more entrenched and well-defined oikophobic movement now? Yes, social media definitely plays a role in it. One thing about orcophobia is that it tends to become more extreme the more diffused knowledge is. Uh, I mentioned before the role that egalitarianism and democracy play in orcophobia. And so as knowledge becomes more diffused and social media, the internet certainly uh, helps in that, as the idea of egalitarianism, that we all have access to the same information, we're all connected, and we're all able to uh, argue with experts, with intellectuals, and so on, uh, the more orcophobia will occur. And so it stands to reason that orcophobia is more extreme with every manifestation. So orcophobia existed in ancient times, but it was more confined to the elite, uh, because even though they had democracy in Greece, it was still not as democratic as our countries are today. But so since you are more democratic, since you are more connected, there's a greater sense of equality, and that uh, certainly boosts orcophobia. As for the reactionaries, of course, the same goes for that side as well. Social media uh, has the same effect on them, and so their reaction will become stronger as well. I'm wondering how oikophobia interacts with some of the great philosophies of recent times. Since World War II, there's been more of a fashion for especially philosophies that question the idea of power and that see the sinister role of power relations. I'm wondering how those philosophies have encouraged or leveraged oikophobia in propagating themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they certainly have. I do spend some time in the book basically tracing 
that particular line of thought from the Frankfurt School through, well, mostly French postmodernists, but who then also, of course, had a, a great influence in North America and elsewhere. Now, of course, there are many individual differences among these thinkers, but certainly the obsession with power and oppression, which does begin with the Frankfurt School, in a great extent, they are a manifestation of ochophobia. This sort of obsession with power hierarchies and this understanding of the sins, if you will, that one's own civilization have committed, that is typical of ochophobia. And one finds that, again, to a, to a lesser extent, but, but the same general trend is visible in uh, ancient Greece. Certainly among the Greeks, one has in, in late classical times this idea that Athens, the Athenians, have been acting very heavy-handedly, and the Athenians shouldn't think them shouldn't think themselves better than anyone else, and we have victimized other peoples, and so on. And, and so that is a, a, a bit of a microcosm of the idea, which is more popular now, again, through egalitarianism and through the, the diffusion of knowledge that we see in the 20th century. One, one does recognize certain ideas there, one certain, certain parallels. And so this obsession with power is, is an expression of ophobia. And it's not so much that it's necessarily incorrect in all ways, but rather that it comes at the expected time in the civilizational development. And the fact that everything is a power structure and that everything expresses an interest, that is actually true, uh, but it is a rather trivial truth because that is and always will be the case. The suffix phobia connotes an irrational fear, but do you acknowledge that in some ways the oikophobic reflex maybe can have, at least in moderate doses, a healthy effect on the intellectual life of a civilization. Uh, if you look at the Frankfurt School, which you mentioned, it made us conscious of the fact that mass media uh, can indoctrinate us in ideologies that benefit the, the powers that be, and that we can be manipulated. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, it's not ochophobia itself that is necessary, or small doses of ochophobia that are necessary, but rather that the path toward ochophobia is a useful one. The problem is that once one is on that path, it can't really be arrested, at least so far as history shows. In my reading, that uh, path cannot really be stopped. Because when I say phobia, I am speaking, of course, precisely of this irrational tendency, not simply of self-critique, which I think is always healthy, and any, any healthy individual and civilization should engage in. The phobia part means that this sort of that we're talking about the sort of knee-jerk reaction in which all crimes are laid at one's own feet and everything that's wrong with the world is assumed to be one's own fault. The self-questioning phase that takes place before ochophobia, that's certainly a healthy one. And, and again, I wouldn't, say that, I wouldn't say that there's no truth in any of these philosophical movements, only that I think it's overemphasized. Now, of course, if you have a very strong conservative and jingoistic tendency in a particular society, the ochophobes might have some use as a counterweight, and they sort of cancel each other out. Uh, but ochophobia, taken in and of itself, I cannot say is a good thing. One even sees this in some of the, since we're talking about the Frankfurt School, in some of the later developments, you have somebody like Habermas, who is sort of a late Frankfurt schooler. In his later years, he has sort of come around to acknowledging that some of the excesses of the Frankfurt School were indeed excesses, and he seems to sort of have resigned himself to the idea that the Western civilization that we have for all its faults, is the best one that we're ever going to get, probably. Once you have that sort of self-correction within the excessive orcophobic manifestation, we might be getting somewhere uh, closer to the truth, yes. Western societies have gotten very self-aware about racism and bigotry, and we have legal institutions and certainly intellectual reflexes that we try and develop, whereby we, we try to be more enlightened and less prejudicial. 
Do you think over time it would be possible to use the same kind of self-awareness to train ourselves to avoid some of the oikophobia you're describing? I hope so, but I certainly have my doubts. I'm not too optimistic, if I'll be very frank. Simply by looking at the trajectories of the civilizations before us, this does not give me reason, I think, to be optimistic. The oikophobic trajectory cannot really be arrested. It just sort of continues and continues until the civilization sinks into irrelevance. And of course, oikophobia is not the only reason why civilization sinks into irrelevance. There are many reasons for the rise and decline of civilizations, but since we're looking at it from this particular lens, oikophobia cannot really be stopped. One does see, if one, if we look at our civilization right now, there certainly is a bit of a balancing act, uh, I think, from some people where oikophobia is rejected, but the tribalism and jingoism and racism that were more common in earlier days is also rejected. And of course, that is um, that is a rather Hegelian idea in a sense, this thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, even though I didn't use those terms, but this idea that one will have an error and then one will have an error in the other direction. And then finally, something like a synthesis, something like a, uh, a cohesive answer in the end will emerge. And one does seem see some traces of that. Uh, there's certainly some young people now who uh, are not jingoistic or, or racist, but who also reject the excesses of alcophobia. By and large, however, it seems to me as if the overall tendency will be in the direction of alcophobic excess. There has not been any other civilization, certainly among the ones that I have looked at, where, uh, this, where the ship is straightened, as it were. And if the ship is straightened, it is only at the price of, of the power and influence of that civilization. Benedict Beckold, thank you so much for joining the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.